Father, thank you for our time this semester together as men. Lord, thank you that we have the privilege of doing this, um, that you've given us space in our own personal schedules, that you've given us um, the freedom to do so publicly, to gather together early in the morning. Thank you for the people who have uh, helped shape our time. Thank you for our leaders. Um, thank you for Summer and Pat and our sextons, oh God. Thank you most of all, Father, that you've given us a reason to show up, that there is good news to be proclaimed and believed and lived in, and that when we show up to study your word, that you promise that your word won't return void, that even if some mornings we're tired and there's very little internally that directs us towards your word, we can expect your spirit to overcome that in us. And so we pray that you would do it again. Um, wherever we are this morning, that you would help us to know you, um, uh, to love you, to know that we are loved by you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So um, uh, this semester, we've been studying the book of Proverbs, and we've been repeatedly asking the question throughout the book, uh, what does it mean to be men who are wise? What does it mean to live in wisdom? What does it mean to be men who are skilled in the art of godly living? That's the subject of Proverbs. You certainly almost had that by now. Proverbs is an intensely practical guide for making wise decisions. And just to recap, since this is our last time together, we began our semester in uh, September with an overview of the book as a whole. So we began sort of asking big questions, like how, if we're to read the book, how do we engage in the book thoughtfully and prayerfully and devotionally? Uh, what is, or what should be, what does Proverbs say should be our orientation towards God? Uh, why is wisdom important in the first place? I mean, there's a lot of things that we could get, but Proverbs says get wisdom. Why is it important uh, to get wisdom? Then after that, and this is where we've been for the last eight weeks or so, is we've been studying three recurring themes in Proverbs um, topically uh, that, that the book returns to over and over again, uh, themes that are relevant to who we are as men. Uh, one of those themes, uh, the first thing that we looked at is the theme of money. How do we handle, how do we think about, how do we engage wisely in uh, the use and um, uh, the, the stewardship of money? Number two, relationships. How do we as men uh, act as good fathers and husbands and friends. And finally, we looked the last couple weeks at work. How do we be diligent workers? How do we see our lives framed as stewards of what God has given us to do in the material world? So I want to end this morning by, in many ways, coming full circle and finishing where we begin. And the reason I think that's important for us this morning is because Proverbs out of context can give us the false impression that wisdom is simply a matter of following instructions. Out of context, the book of Proverbs can give us the false impression that wisdom is really just a matter of following instructions. So you can imagine it with me for a moment. Uh, you turn to Proverbs for practical uh, and moral guidance on a particular topic that is important for you. You're looking for help about, uh, in regards to work. Uh, or, uh, or making money, or your relationships, or whatever, uh, a speech, how you talk to uh, someone else. And you turn to Proverbs looking for those things, and you find a proverb, or you find a collection of Proverbs, and you take a sliver of that true advice, and you think to yourself, look, if I can just follow these steps, then I can be successful at fill in the blank. If I can just do these things, and I can be successful at, you fill up the, in the blank. That wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, <laughs> but it is not the message of the book as a whole. The intent of Proverbs is not to, tain, to, to tell you, to train you 
in how to gain more control of your life as a whole by following instructions. The intent of the book is to tell you what it looks like to yield control of your whole life over to God. So the really big question that Proverbs puts to us is the big question that the Bible puts to us over and over again through all of its stories and commands and parables and songs. And that is this, the fundamental question is, what is your relationship to God? How is it that you relate to your creator? How do you relate to God? And missing this fundamental question in any part of the Bible is like missing the vows when it comes to a wedding celebration. Okay? With young couples, this is a regular temptation. There is so much passion and so much thought and so much anxiety that goes into a wedding celebration, a modern wedding celebration. How many of you know from experience how big the wedding industry has become? Like you have done your part to like, you know, to help increase that industry. There is so much that is fun and there is so much that is beautiful and there is so much that is awesome that accompanies a modern wedding celebration that it's easy to forget that none of it has any meaning apart from the vows. The vows are the center of a wedding. The vows are the things that make the party. They, they invest everything else that goes into a wedding with its real meaning. The vows make all the preparation, well, they should make all the preparations worth it, right? In the same way, it is your relationship with God, how you relate to Him, that gives all the moral instruction that you find in places like Proverbs, that gives it its true meaning. Your relationship to God invests everything that Scripture says with its true meaning. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to end our study here with Proverbs' perspective on a successful life. Uh, Another way of saying it is Proverbs' perspective on a life that is well-lived. And I want us to return in many ways to the central question, not only of this book, but of all the books that you find throughout the canon of Scripture. So three questions from your handout this morning, and you'll find them there listed. And there are Proverbs under each of them. Number one, where is it that a successful life begins? Where does a successful life begin? Number two, how is a successful life lived? And then finally, what's its goal? So where does a successful life begin? Number two, how is it lived? And finally, what is its goal? Where does a successful life begin? Look at me again at Proverbs 1-7 on your handout. I say again because we spent a whole week on this section at the very beginning of the semester. Okay, you probably remember that. It was, you know, one of those life-changing moments that you had in the study. Proverbs 1-7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, we said earlier in the semester that 1-7, chapter 1, verse 7, is the climax of the book's prologue which means that the fear of the Lord is the chief underlying principle of all that follows in the book. It is the interpretive lens for reading the Proverbs as a whole. So what does that mean practically? We looked at that at the beginning of the semester. I want us to think about it again just for a moment. What does it look like practically to live in the fear of the Lord? Now let me say it very simply to you this morning. It looks like you bending your knee before God. Living in the fear of the Lord looks practically like you bending your knee before God. And 
look, I want to, um, that, that is an action <laughs> um, of the will. It is something that you do. It is not something you feel. In other words, you bend your knee whether you feel like it or not. You bend your knee before him whether you always fully believe it intellectually or not. Fearing God is bending before him. It is bowing before him and saying, in the words of Jesus, in a crucial moment of his own life, it is saying, not my will, but your will be done. Now think about this. This is the way that Jesus himself teaches us to relate to God in the Lord's Prayer. He says, our Father who art in heaven. Then what does he say next? What does he say? Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name means... um, May your name be feared. <laughs> May your name be taken seriously. Fearing the Lord. And then what does he say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. This is the same orientation expressed in Proverbs 19.21. You have it there on your handout. Look at Proverbs 19.21. The writer says this, Many are the plans in a man's heart. <laughs> Many are the plans in your heart but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now you see this throughout the Proverbs, and you would miss it if you were just going to the Proverbs to look for advice on money. But the Proverbs wants you to say, look, have you come to terms as a man with the sovereign rule of God over your own life? That's what it means to fear him. Have you ever bent your knee before him? Have you done it this morning? The Lord's Prayer is a repeated prayer. Have you bent your knee before him and said, look, Lord, I have many plans, I have many desires, I have many things that I want out of life, but look, not my will, not my desires, not what I want, but what you want be done. One aspect of fearing God is yielding to him and saying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's one aspect. The other aspect is more clear in chapter 14, verses 26 through 27. So look there with me on your sheet now for a moment. The writer also talks about the fear of the Lord. Again, you see that language um, dominated in the, in the book of, the, of Proverbs. And in 14, 26 through 27, the writer writes this. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. In the fear of the Lord, his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Now, what I want you to notice here is not only is the fear of the Lord language that leans into the authority of God, the strength of God, but it's also a place here of refuge and support. In other words, the writer of Proverbs is saying the fear of the Lord is not only um, a manner of living, an orientation towards God that causes you to bow your knee before him, but the fear of the Lord is also an orientation towards God that causes you to run towards him, to run into him as a place of refuge and support in times of trouble and doubt, and anxiety, and fear. One theologian, J.I. Packer, says that all of this comes together. In the Old Testament, you have the strands that come together. In the New Testament, when Jesus teaches us to call on God as our Father, he writes that the fatherhood of God is the summary, is the summary. If you get anything this morning, get this. The fatherhood of God is the summary of how we are called to relate to God. Packer writes this, you have this little passage on your handout this morning. He says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion. That means all of it. That's a big statement. The whole of New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God, as as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. 
and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Look, I realize that this morning where you sit, many of you had really good fathers. And you can look back at your own fathers and how you were parented, and you can know by extension that this is, this is something of who God is to you. And I also realize that where you sit this morning, some of you had awful fathers. You had awful fathers. Um, and you don't even want to think about fatherhood for that reason. And I, I, I realize this, too, that many of us are probably somewhere in between. <laughs> um, by the grace of God, though, by either extension or contrast in your own imagination, you know what a good father is. By contrast or by extension, by the grace of God, you still know how to judge what it means to have a father who is good to you, and you judge it like this. It is someone who oversees you. It is someone who rules over you, even as it is someone who cares for you. Listen once again to the proverb. In the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. In his children will have a refuge. A successful life begins with a reverence for God as our Holy Father who rules over and cares for us. Secondly, how is it lived? How is it lived? How does that get fleshed out in our lives? Well, another way of saying it is, how does the fatherhood of God actually come to bear on who we are as men? How does he, how does he father us? Well, look at Proverbs chapter 30. I only want to read the first two verses there, 5 and 6, this morning. Okay, so you should know that, that uh, the subtitle of this part of the Proverbs is, um, is this is from, these, are written, these Proverbs are written by a man named Agur, the son of Jacob. And you don't know who that is, and neither do I. But it's sort of important because it means that these are his personal words. Like this is, they fix his name to this because it's personal for him. Okay, and I want you to hear what he says. He says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. The big picture, how is it that God uh, exercises his loving authority over us? Well, Agora writes, it is by every word of his that proves true. By every word of his that proves true. Such is the seriousness and the sacredness of God's word that he says you can't take anything away from it lest you fall under judgment or add anything to it, you'll fall under judgment. And the idea here is that the reverence that we give to God should come out in the reverence by extension that we give to his word. The same reverence that we have for God is the same reverence that we should have for his word. Most of you this morning, I think, probably have heard that before. It never hurts to hear it again, but most of you, that's not sort of a new thought. What I want you to see this morning is that for Agur, the son of Jacob, This is not merely a doctrine to be stated and affirmed. In other words, he is not just saying, look, as men, or whoever is reading it, as women, whoever it is, but for you this morning, as men, you should take the word of God in your life more seriously. He's not just saying that. For him, it is much more personal than that. Look at the passage again. For him, the commands of God are the outworking of how he feels about God. Is it too early as men to talk about our feelings on a Tuesday morning? I want to talk about our feelings just for a moment. We get that from verse 5. So so Agur says, every word of God proves true. And then what does he say? He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. It turns very personal for him. 
And from verse 6, do not add to his words or then what? You get a personal rebuke for treating God's word casually. So what does that all mean? How do we sort of bring that down for us? Well, I think he's suggesting this, and I've sort of said it in a different way. How you feel about God's commands in your life. Think about this for a second. Reflect on that. How you feel about God's commands are an index for how you really feel about God. How you feel about the commands of God are an index for how you really feel about him. For example, if you experientially, in your own heart, if you feel that God's commands are too rigid, then chances are you feel that way about God as well. You feel in your heart that he is severe, he is strict, he is inflexible, he is for you a taskmaster. Or take the opposite. If you feel that his commands are just general suggestions in your life, maybe they're just broad guidelines that aren't that literal, then my guess is you probably feel fairly distant from him. He is unconcerned. He is indifferent. He is preoccupied with other things. He is a remote ruler that has little daily impact on the decisions you make in your life. If you feel that God's commands are an exam to pass or a way of earning his acceptance, then chances are you feel unsettled in your own heart about his stance towards you overall. Does he approve of you? Can you ever please him? Will you as a man ever pass his scrutiny? He is a judge to you. But, if you feel that God's commands are his way of loving you, and obedience to his commands is your way of loving him, then men, that's a sweet spot. That's a sweet spot. It probably means that you are learning how to relate to God as your father who art in heaven. The sweet spot is when you get a sense that all of his words are not only true, but what that means for you is that all of his words are also tokens of love for you in the way that he exercises his fatherhood and his loving authority over your life. Aesop has this fable called the sun and the wind, and it goes like this. The wind and the sun were disputing which was stronger, having an argument, and saw a traveler walking by with a coat on. And the son says, look, I know how to settle the dispute. Why don't, why don't we both see who's stronger by seeing who can make the traveler take off his coat? And the wind said, I'll go first. And the son hid behind a cloud, and the wind blew at the traveler, and the traveler pulled his coat towards him, and the wind blew hard and blew with all of its force. And the traveler took his coat, and he gripped it, and he held onto it more and more strongly. No matter how hard the wind blew, he, he couldn't make the traveler take off his coat. He just held onto it more strongly until finally the wind gave up in despair. Then it was the sun's turn. The sun came out and he shone in all his glory upon the traveler. And of course, the traveler, feeling the glory of the sun upon him, soon found it too warm to keep his coat on. And so he took it off. And Aesop wants us to see, look, the sun won the wager, but how did he win the wager? He won the wager not by severity. He won the wager by love. That's how a Christian is won over to really obeying and honoring the commands of God, not by severity, but by love. God's God's words are taken for the Christian to be tokens of love for him. Every word of God proves true. Well, so what? He is a shield, Agar says, for those who who will take refuge in him. A successful life is lived in loving submission to God's word 
as the way that he expresses his fatherhood over us. Finally, this morning, I just want to end this way. What is the goal of a successful life? What is the goal of a successful life according to Proverbs consistent with the whole testimony of the Scriptures? So according to Proverbs, the goal of a well-lived life is not often, you know this, but it's not often what we default to as the goals for our lives. I just want you to think for a moment. Like just this morning when you woke up, what are the goals that you had for your life? Like most of us are probably, you know, getting the urgent things done, getting to Thanksgiving, you know, um, that things don't blow up with our families at Thanksgiving. That would be a good goal to have. Um, many of our goals, though, if you think about them, if you sort of, uh, try to understand what underlies our goals, a lot of our goals are about control. Can we sort of predict and control our lives a little bit better? Some of them are about, um, about prosperity. Can we have more? Um, uh, can we control more? Can we oversee more? Can we steward more? Some of our goals are about the avoidance of suffering. Like, we don't want to suffer. And so we'll do anything in our lives to avoid the suffering that looks like it might be coming our way. Uh, those are all maybe good things, maybe important things. They are not the express goal, the express will of God for his people in Scripture. The goal of a successful life, the goal of a life well lived, is a deeper relationship with your Creator and your Redeemer. The first goal, the first aim, the first target of a well lived life is a deeper relationship with God. It is knowing Him, it is being known by Him, it is finding in Him the source of our true selves. So you think Proverbs probably is all about sort of very practical matters, and it is. But I just want to read three Proverbs to you for a moment, okay? Um, Just to show you that that it may not be always how you think it is. Look with me in your handout at Proverbs 15.3. Proverbs says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In other words, uh, no one escapes the notice of God. In the end, no one escapes the notice of God. Uh, Proverbs 16.2 All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord is the one who weighs the Spirit. Not only is it true that no one escapes the notice of God, but it's also true that no one escapes the scrutiny of God, right? The analysis of God. In the end, um, He will weigh us. And then finally, look at Proverbs 29, 20 verse 9. Who can say, who can say, I have made my way pure? I am clean from my sin. No one escapes the observation of God. No one escapes the scrutiny of God. And no one escapes, Proverbs says, no one escapes the judgment of God. And what I want you to see is that Proverbs is extremely practical. One of the ways that Proverbs is practical is Proverbs is also very apocalyptic. (laughs) Proverbs remains practical by reminding you that in the end, no matter your circumstances, no matter your achievements, no matter your zip code, we will all stand before God and give an account of the life that we have lived. We will all stand there. And he will account for us. He will weigh our spirits. He will weigh our actions and our attitudes and our thoughts and our moments. And in that moment, so so says Proverbs, weighed by the Lord, not one of us will be able to say before him, I have made my way pure, O Lord. I am clean from my sin. We won't be able to say that. Our achievements won't be able to say that. Our marriages won't be able to say that. Our influence, not even our good attentions, Nothing that we have lived for will be able to say on our behalf, I have made my way pure. I am clean from my sin. Nothing that is except for God himself. And this is where we get, even in the Proverbs, a hint of where the New Testament and the whole canon is taking us. Only God can say that because only God can make you safe. 
from the way that your sin and your brokenness has spoiled the beauty of His world. Only God in the end can make right what we have made wrong. Only God in the end can redeem you, can rescue you back as a true son and make you safe once again in the grip of a true father. Look at Proverbs 29-25. The fear of man lays a snare. And you know what the fear of man here, here is? The fear of man is living a life that is defined by the institutions and the people around us. It is living a life to please other people. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever is defined by Him, whoever runs into Him, whoever says, you become the one in whom my identity is secured, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This past summer, I met a man at, um, at a camp that I took my, my two oldest boys to called Camp Altapai. We were there for a father-son weekend, and we had a mutual acquaintance introduce us in the lunch line. Uh, uh, the man that I met, his name was um, Richie James Leslie. Richie James Leslie. You've never heard of his name, but if you Googled him, um, his name would come up several times over. Uh, Richie is uh, an anomaly when you first meet him. Richie is Japanese, okay? But he speaks with an extremely strong Mississippi accent, okay? So these are two things. Mississippi and Japan don't, you know, I don't know, don't, don't seem to go together in my own mind. So Richie was born in Japan. Richie was adopted very early in life by a U.S. serviceman. Um, his adoptive father was stationed for a time in Japan, and though he was single, he always wanted children, so he adopted Richie. Um, soon after the adoption, he moved, uh, he got transferred to Korea and moved to Korea and married a Korean woman who became Richie's stepmother. But before Richie really can remember very well, Richie's father was tragically killed in a boating accident in Korea. And his Korean stepmother didn't want him. And so he was sent, uh, barely more than a toddler, he was sent to live with his adoptive father's mother. So his adoptive grandmother who was an older, single widow living in rural Mississippi. So that's how he came to Mississippi. And Richie, um, that's how he got his thick southern draw. That's where he learned to hunt. You know, he has everything that you think of uh, as a Mississippi State grad. I'm sorry if you have any Mississippi State grads. I think the world of you. Okay. <laughs> uh, Richie's adoptive grandmother loved and raised him like uh, he was her own. Richie lived a, fa a fairly uh, even life uh, for those years. Um, he was raised in the church. He became a Christian in the church. And then his adoptive grandmother passed away when he was in his early teens, and he had no family left in his early teens. He bounced around from foster home to foster home. Some of those were good. Some of those were bad. Um, until he enrolled in college at Mississippi State, and that's when the letter came. Um, in his uh, late teens, early 20s, Richie received notice from the INS that for almost 20 years he had been living as an illegal in the U.S. So after all this time, he had never been granted citizenship. I guess his adoptive grandmother didn't know what to do there because his adoptive father was a U.S. citizen, and, and the military itself had helped broker that deal. It helped connect him with his adoptive grandmother in, in Mississippi. But by the letter of the law, there was absolutely no provision for Richie to stay, and so he began to exhaust every legal means he came, came uh, before all the judges. In fact, the first judge he went to he got there kind of late. He was dressed up, and he spoke, and, and the judge um, railed on him uh, for being late. He said, look, I'm so tired of all you lawyers coming to my courtroom late. And, of course, Richie wasn't the lawyer. He was 
he was the person standing for um, the judge uh, for mercy. So he exhausted every legal option he had, but in the end, a, a judge told him the final option, that he would be deported back to Japan. And if you remember, Richie has no contacts in Japan. He was an orphan there. He hadn't lived there since he was a newborn. He speaks with a Mississippi accent, and he's going to Japan with no connections, no family, nothing. That was his plight. That was the decision, except for an act of Congress. And that's what it took. So a representative for Mississippi's first congressional district, Roger Wicker, sponsored a bill called for the relief of Richie James Leslie. And in October 30, 2004, Richie was made a United States citizen when President Bush signed the bill into law. Really cool. He still has the pen. He still has the picture of that day when Bush signed the, um, uh, signed, uh, the bill into law. And the way Richie tells the story, you know, he says, you know, for me on that day, um, my identity changed. My security changed. Here I had, for the first time, all the legal standing of an American citizen. I was entitled to all the rights and privileges and protections of citizenship such that no longer did the opinions of judges or attorneys or anyone else matter. I had the law. I had the law. And it was that declaration that established my identity as an American citizen. But listen to me. We were talking about that story um, at a father-son weekend, standing in line uh, uh, for a lunch as both of us watched our boys um, uh, play right out there uh, beneath us. And Richie was telling that story as he was watching his own son, and his own son was playing there, and he was happy, and he was carefree, and he was secure, and he was doing all this under the watchful eye of a father at a father-son weekend. And Richie said, you know, this is why these moments are so precious to me, because this is the kind of thing that I could have only dreamed about doing as a little boy. And I could tell in the telling of his story, and in the moment he was telling it, that the law for Richie not only meant the security of his citizenship as an American, but the law for Richie had secured even more a father and son relationship that he had yearned for his entire life. You know, for him, the law was important. It was important. But the law was not the point in the end. The legal had paved the way for the relational in his life. And this is really the gospel. This is what happens to us and for us in the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the cross, through the work of Jesus, we are declared, like a bill signed into law, we are declared a citizen of heaven. We have a secure home among the people of God. We have an identity that is not uh, subject to the opinions of other people. Through Christ, we are judged by legal fiat, righteous in his sight. And all of that is wonderful, but it's not the main point. The legal paves the way for a richer identity, one in which you are not merely called a citizen, you are called a son. The life and sufferings of Jesus as the true son, as the one who was orphaned for us at the cross. It is his life, it is his sufferings, it is his sacrifice that grants to us our sonship that you and I might work and play and live and parent and engage in money and everything else that we do under the loving and watchful eye of our Father who is in heaven. Listen to me. I want to end this way. We started talking about wisdom. Let's define wisdom this way as we end. Wisdom is living all that you are as sons. Wisdom is living all that you are as sons for all that he is as your father in all the places to which God has called you. Remember, in the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters are framed as a father 
directing the life of a beloved son. And it's framed that way because wisdom in the end only makes sense in that context. It is the paradigm for all of your discipleship. It is the paradigm for all of your life that in Jesus Christ, finally, legally, institutionally, relationally, you are the beloved sons of God with whom the Father is well pleased. May we live that way as men. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this semester. We pray that wisdom will make sense to us in that context, that how we handle the things that you've given us to handle today will make sense uh, in the reality that you are our Father who loves us, who is in heaven. And may we be able to say, Father, even as your true Son, in whom we are bound, in whom we are uh, made righteous, counted righteous, in whom we received adoption ourselves, um, may we be able to say, even as Jesus did, not our own wills, but yours be done. May we count your will as a good will in our lives, Father. Um, we pray, God, that you would teach us how to live that out, that reality out, in all, um, all the tasks, all the assignments, all the places that we'll walk to next. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.